1: Welcome to another week of broken. Goodness gracious, I almost did it. Welcome to another week of breaking battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. Program I'm really excited about today because our first guest is Corey DeAngelis. He is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, Executive Director at the Educational Freedom Institute, Adjunct Scholar at the Cato Institute and Randy Weingarten's personal nightmare, uh, union boss Randy Weingarten. Corey, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Really glad to have you.
2: Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Yeah, I have really enjoyed following your work the last few years because you have been really, I think, the leading light for school choice and for, frankly, fighting for kids and parents in an educational environment that is tilted badly in favor of the teachers' unions, the administration, and special interests that have nothing to do with the successful development of kids. Tell us a little bit more about your work, and, and we'll take it from there.
2: Yeah, and at the same time, we got to thank Randy Weingarten for inadvertently doing more to advance the concept of school choice, homeschooling, and parental rights in education over the past two years than anyone could have ever imagined. The teachers unions have overplayed their hand, showed their true colors, and awakened a sleeping giant, these these parents who just want more of a say in their kids' education. So she's kind of been doing my job for me over the past (laughs) couple of years uh, with the the school closures and tying political nonsense to the reopening of schools uh, since since March of 2020. Um, And it was clear as day right in front of everybody's eyes. I mean, you even had one of the AFT local affiliates in Chicago. Their board member was vacationing in Puerto Rico in person, obviously, while railing against going back to work in person. So they gave <laughs> us so many examples of just them just uh, stepping in it over and over and again. And now we have an all-time supportive school choice, uh, an eight-percentage-point jump in support of the concept of the money following the child nationwide – uh, according to Real Clear Opinion research polling since April of 2020, with now 72 percent of Americans supporting school choice. So, uh, Randy Weingarten should get an award for the school choice advocate of the of the year, uh, or, or the past two years at least. And so, uh, well, but yeah, I, I'm Corey DeAngelis, and I, I advocate for school choice policies. Obviously, <laughs> <and> <laughs> the way that I like to put it is is that we should fund students as opposed to systems just like we do with just about everything else with higher education. We have scholarships for Pell Grants or the GI Bill for Veterans, for example, where the money goes to the student, and then they can pick the community college or public university that they want, but the money could also follow them to a private religious or non-religious university. We do the same thing with pre-K programs like Head Start. You can pick a private religious pre-K provider if you want. We do the same thing with food stamps where the money goes to the person instead of a government-run grocery store. And all I'm arguing with school choice is that we apply the same logic to K-12 education to fund people as opposed to buildings.
0: Corey, this is Chuck Warren. You know, during COVID, I believe the remote teaching just woke up not only a lot of mothers but specifically a lot of fathers. I've heard numerous stories, more than I can count, of fathers uh, who are either in the financial industry or you know doctors or whatever um, they're home they're working and they hear their kids zoom class and it's like they got hit aside the head with a bat have you found that the remote learning that the schools pushed when they closed was really something that woke up a lot of these sleepy parents and that has really put energy back into this
2: yeah, parents are uh, awake and they've they're thinking a lot more about their kids' education in a different way than they, they have uh, uh, for for a long time. And I wouldn't even call it remote learning. We should be real; it was remotely learning because <laughs> of all the learning loss, um, right? You know, and and this kind of thing that they were doing at home was not homeschooling either. It was a failed version of government schooling at home that just did not work out well. It was involuntary. Families weren't happy with with how things were going, one, because of it was a you know a horrible way to transmit information and for kids to learn over Zoom. Um, so there was learning loss all across the country, especially in places that had the schools closed longer. And but the other side benefit was that families got to see what was going on in the classroom. So they started hearing curriculum that they didn't find to be aligned with their values. A lot of parents who otherwise would have thought their kids were in great public schools, maybe they were A-rated public schools by the state, or maybe you know uh, their kids had great standardized test scores, these same parents started to realize that there's a, another dimension of school quality that's argu- arguably more important, which is whether the school curriculum is aligned with their values. And that also fueled the fire behind parents to go push back at school board meetings, which, by the way, um, led to them being essentially labeled as domestic terrorists by the National School Boards Association and the Biden administration, where the NSBA actually sent a letter to the Biden administration requesting that some parents were implying that some of them should be investigated as domestic terrorists you, for pushing back about CRT. Corey,
1: you, you hit on a great point, I mean, and I, I apologize for cutting you off there, but I think a lot of folks don't understand this. So the unions – in all their various forms, run our local public schools, right? Yeah, I mean they control them, and they control the school boards through the school board association.
2: Yeah, I mean they they have I, so much power when it when it comes to the the traditional system, and that's why they're freaking out whenever anybody proposes to have the money follow the child. They want a monopoly on children's minds, and they want to get the family's education dollars, regardless what, what, of how well they Corey. did.
0: Corey, it's worse than that. It doesn't even follow the child. I mean, it's not worse than that. But on their point with the teachers unions is it doesn't only not follow the child. It doesn't even follow the teacher. So you have these governors, you know, in Arizona. I mean, Sam, how much more extra funding we've given? Three, four, five billion dollars over the last four years. It's like six or seven
1: billion. They're
0: supposed to get a 20 percent pay increase. They've been at 15, 16, some districts 11. And they just keep what they keep doing is just hiring different people or broadening various levels of bureaucracy, all for a power grab. I mean, the money's not even going to the teachers.
2: That's right. We've seen this historically as well. We're seeing it with the COVID relief money, but we're also seeing we've seen it over time. We've thrown more and more money at K to twelve education than ever before, nationwide, between nineteen ninety two to twenty fourteen, for example, a report by Ben Scaffity showed that per-people education expenditures jumped by 27% after adjusting for inflation, but teacher salaries in real terms actually dropped by 2%, and that's because they shovel more money towards putting more people into the buildings, which is great for teachers union bosses like Randy Weingarten, who make over $560,000 a year, because more people means more dues-paying members, but that's not so good for the teachers in the classroom, especially with all the red tape and the, and the bureaucracy in the current system. School choice and competition in the labor market would be good for teachers, too. And I've found five studies on the topic that I wrote about the Washington Examiner in a piece called School Choice Benefits Teachers, Too. All five of these studies have found statistically significant positive effects of school choice competition, either charter or private schools, on the teacher salaries in the public schools, too. So it's a win-win situation. It's good for parents and families, obviously, to get more choices, but it's good for the employees too because the problem in the current system is the monopoly doesn't have any particularly strong incentives to put those additional dollars towards things that make outcomes better, and the best way to do that is to funnel the money into the classroom towards the
1: teachers who are doing a good job. Yeah, Corey, I, I have posited, and, and tell me if you disagree, but I have posited that they, deliberate to, they deliberately keep teacher salaries low so that they can continue to run them out there in the streets holding signs, demanding more money for the school, and then they keep that money from them too. It's a constant shell game where the teachers are frankly being used by their own unions. Yeah,
2: and, and over the past two years in particular, just the union's, you know, they don't spend the money wisely that in ways that benefit the teachers. But then they also make them look bad by including in the demands to reopen schools, uh, Medicare for all, wealth tax, um, and, and other political agendas that have not, had nothing to do with reopening the schools. And then you have Randy Weingarten on Twitter every day just complaining about conservatives and Republicans. It's like, well, you know, a lot of teachers in the system are conservatives. Why are you being so political about things? You're turning off a lot of, of your members and uh, you're upsetting a lot of the country and you shouldn't do that as as the leader of a uh, of, of a big labor union.
1: Uh, and, and I think in general, government labor unions miss the boat on funneling the money from their dues into things that directly benefit their members because they are essentially just political lobbies. They don't view the world in terms of what's best for their members. They view it in what's best for their union and the dues that they can generate.
2: Yeah, and the latest numbers that I've seen in the 2022 election cycle so far, according to Open Secrets, get this 99.99, I'm not making that up, (laughs) 99.99% of the contributions have gone to Democrats from Randy Weingarten's AFT, for example. Um, And so it's totally one-sided, and it seems like a money laundering scheme where Democrats funnel money to the teachers unions, and then they go and, and give that money back to uh, the Democratic candidates. And um, you know, people should pay more attention to, to, to and follow the money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One one of the things I, I want to ask: Did you coin the phrase "fund students, not systems"? Because I think words matter, and I thought that has been a brilliant rallying cry for the school I think some movement.
2: people have said it before me, but I certainly popularized the term. I I, I don't know if I made it up, but uh, certainly popularized it. I think the benefit is that it puts the other side on defense. If you say fund students not systems, all of a sudden the other side has to explain why we should fund the buildings and not the kids. It puts them in an explaining <laughs> position that they've never had to be in before and it allows you to talk about these analogies where we fund people as opposed to buildings with everything else and you can point out their logical inconsistencies. Why would you support Every other program, Medicaid, where the, the money can go to a Catholic religious hospital if you want, uh, Pell Grant, the GI Bill, why would you support pre-K programs where you, the the family follows the decision, the funding follows the decision of the family? What about food stamps? What about all these other programs? But then only when it comes to those in between years of K to twelve education, you get all up in arms about it. It's all because the on, the only difference there is one of power dynamics. Choice is the norm. For everything else and every other level of education, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest, the government school monopoly teachers unions. only when it comes to K to 12 education. So they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo.
1: Corey, we we have just about one minute before we go to break. We're going to bring you back on for the next segment. But tell folks how they can follow you, how they can keep up with you
2: go to my Twitter, it's at DeAngelisCorey, but you can also help us in the fight for education freedom by going to educationfreedompledge.com.
1: Fantastic. Corey DeAngelis, glad to have you on the program today. We're going to have you right back on here in just a moment. Folks, follow him on Twitter. Go to Ed, Go there, support this guy because he is doing amazing work right now for the school choice movement and really benefiting kids across this country. Breaking Battlegrounds, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. On the line with us right now, Corey DeAngelis, National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children and the leading, frankly, I think the leading warrior for school choice and for improving outcomes in this country.
0: Absolutely. Corey, um, tell us how you got involved and made this a passion for a career. I'm always interested how people, Sam and I always, you know, how did you end up saying, I'm going to be this... Advocate and this this expert on school choice, um, what brought you to it?
2: Yeah, so I actually grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I attended government-run schools all through K through 12, but in high school, uh, I had access to something called a magnet school, which is still run by the district, but it's a school of choice in that you don't you're not residentially assigned to it. So they have strong incentives to cater to the needs of families because they have to attract their customers. And I felt like that school had a positive impact on my life trajectory, and I think more families should have access to educational opportunities. But it shouldn't be limited to schools that are run by the district. The education funding should follow the child to whatever type of school works best for them, whether if that's a district school, a charter school, a private school, or even if that's a home-based educational option. And then after high school, I actually went to the University of Texas at San Antonio where I studied economics and did my bachelor's and master's out there where I really started to see the problems with monopoly power, which applies to the K-12 education system uh, in for the most part of the country. And then after that, I did a Ph.D. in education policy at the University of Arkansas, where I really started to study the details of these programs and how they can have effects on testing outcomes and academics, but even more importantly, things like reducing crime and, and reports of teenage pregnancies and other uh, holistic benefits of getting access to a school that works for your kids. So that really had me interested in the topic. And um, I've started to see, you know, over the past several years in particular, that there just isn't any good argument uh, against funding the student uh, directly. I mean, the, we, we do it with everything else. Um, and the only argument against it always comes from a position of uh, one side wanting to keep it. Uh, monopoly on the education dollars meant for that are supposed to be meant for children.
1: Yeah, Corey, I, I think I tweeted out in fall of 2020 that you and, and Randy Weingarten were neck and neck for school choice person of the year. Uh, and, and I apologize, I, I think she actually won that race. But yeah. you've had a ton of victories since then, and the school choice movement is really taking off across this country. What are some of the, the kind of key wins that have been happening and benefiting kids?
2: Yeah, the way that I put it before is that COVID didn't break the government school system. In a lot of ways, it was already broken. And the past two years, have simply shined the spotlight on the main problem with K-12 education all across the country, which happens to be a massive, long-existing power imbalance between the status quo and individual families. But thankfully, families are fighting back, and we're dubbing 2021 the year of school choice because 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. And the victories were actually pretty substantial. In Florida, for example, they had their biggest uh, one-year expansion of school choice in state history. Arizona had a a minor expansion, but they also had the Senate pass what would have been the biggest expansion of school choice in Arizona history, and they're trying it again this year, which triple or quadruple the size of their education savings account program, which is the gold standard of school choice. And then we had the number of states with these education savings account programs double from five states to ten states in 2021. And then polling from several different sources is just through the roof. Families are finally figuring out there isn't any good reason to fund the buildings when you can fund the student directly instead. So it's a good time to be a school choice advocate. And a lot of people have said, you know, have pointed out that you haven't really seen – me and Randy Weingarten together in the same room before, so <laughs> it could be that, that that I'm her in a mask. I think Spike Cohen had, had pointed that out on Fox Business with, with Kennedy. Well, several
0: months she ago. probably makes a, she probably makes a lot more money than you, so yeah, you know darn. I think we can just go well, just yeah, go through the tax extort, records.
2: She, she gets to extort funding from from Ex-
0: exactly so. exactly Corey. Um, is it, is it a simple statement to say
2: that Florida and Arizona have been a
0: leader eight years on school choice?
2: Yeah, uh, it, it, it's amazing to be on this uh, show where a lot of the audience is from Arizona and Florida, and they are the, the lead, leading states on school choice. Uh, Florida has more people enrolled in school choice programs than Arizona just because it's a bigger state. But Arizona, in some metrics, have a slightly higher percentage of students using school choice. But it's a smaller boat to move, Arizona, than, than Florida. So, but they are the two leading states, and the governors, Ducey and DeSantis, have just been phenomenal at leading the way and showing other states how it's done uh, when it comes to funding students as as opposed to institutions. So more people are to, we, to try to emulate these two states.
0: Are we coming to the point where you'll, in the near decade or future, where you'll see most red states... Have some school choice, um, substantive programs to it, and blue states still fighting tooth and nail against it?
2: Yeah, I think we're, you know, most of these victories in the past couple of years have been in red states. And it's becoming politically uh, damaging to oppose parental rights and educational freedom. I think more politicians are seeing that. We saw that with Terry McAuliffe in Virginia when he said on, in the final debate uh, in, in the state that. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach and he quadrupled down on the anti-parent rhetoric and that's deeply unpopular. Just the other day you had Joe Biden at the teacher comp the teacher of the year thing at the very end he said, "Oh, I say this all the time, but you know, they're all our children. Uh, you know, when they're in the classroom they're like your kids." And, You know, it's this whole it takes the village mentality that may sound good to them when they're talking to their deeply progressive friends, but it's not a very popular position and it's backfiring on them. And hopefully the Democrats learn from this as well. The thing is, um, Democrats are in a sticky situation in some places because uh, they've become they've been over reliant on the power of the teachers unions who, who don't support parental rights in education. But at the end of the day, hopefully parents will win this, and parents, politicians will be wise to listen to these parents because parents outnumber employees in the system, and parents are going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than anyone will ever fight to take that right away from them. Parents yeah. care about their kids more than anybody else.
1: Corey, one thing the Democrats like to say on that front is that school choice leaves behind poor kids. But the fact is, and, and correct me again if I'm wrong here, that every demographic group benefits from school choice.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at, there's 11 studies in Florida, for example, 10 of the 11 studies have found statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the kids' outcomes in the public schools, too. The latest study was actually from Florida in 2021, finding the expansion of their tax credit scholarship led to better uh, testing outcomes and behavioral outcomes in the public schools. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats competition is a win-win solution no one wants to destroy public schools on the contrary the evidence shows that it makes them better they up their game in response to competition and just look at who uses the programs all across the country disproportionately it's the lower income families that benefit from these programs the most advantaged already have school choice in the sense that they can already afford to live in the neighborhoods that are assigned to the best quote-unquote public schools they're already more likely at least to be able to pay out of pocket for private school tuition and fees Funding students directly, school choice, is an equalizer because it allows more families to access educational options.
1: Corey, Corey DeAngelis, thank you for joining us on the program. We have only about 30 seconds left. Real quick, again, give people the info on how they keep up with you.
2: Yeah, totally. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Corey. And if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, you can take the Education Freedom Pledge, which is educationfreedompledge.com.
1: Awesome. Folks, educationfreedompledge.com. Breaking Battlegrounds, we'll be right back.
2: You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor costs less.
1: Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Our second guest today, timely on the topic, Christopher Bedford, Senior Editor at the Federalist, Chief Communications Officer at Wright Forge. Vice Chairman, Young Young Americans for Freedom, uh, board member at the National Journalism Center, and author of Art of the Donald. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today, and we are excited to have you on the program to talk about everything going on in the world of free speech and journalism at the moment, which is pretty astounding.
3: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And it's been uh, one heck of a month for free speech and journalism and, and social media.
1: Well, obviously the biggest news is Elon Musk uh, making what appears to be at this point a successful purchase of Twitter. But not only that, his Twitter game in the last since he announced that purchase has been obscenely great.
3: He's been phenomenal. It's been extremely entertaining. I put my notifications. I hate phone notifications. They're driving me nuts. But I get a ping every time he tweets something now because it's been (laughs) so interesting to see him. The, the person he is, the battles he's, he's fighting, and, and, and his, how he's been answering to his enemies. He's, he's kind of an interesting character. He's certainly not – he's someone who cares yeah, about free Mc... speech. And these... yeah.
0: hmm? Right. I have a question. Do you think he's actually writing all these tweets? I know he doesn't have a PR agency or communication staff. Do you think he has a friend that's helping him Because they're pretty darn creative.
3: Oh, he is supposedly one of the smartest people in the world. So maybe he's just that creative. He's got a rocket company, a flamethrower company, a brain microchip company. Now Twitter, electric Cars. He's obviously got something going on up there. Uh, and it's certainly not a PR agency because I don't think any PR agency would ever let him tweet most of the things he's uh, yeah. <laughs> He probably well, does maybe, have some well, friends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if he hired you, Christopher, he would have those type of things. But it's pretty it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> um, have you – I I have been – well, I – I would like to pretend I'm surprised, but I am surprised at the vigor in which the blue checkmark journalists have just melted down about this. I mean, it's amazing. They are lost their minds.
3: And it's been so revealing to the point that even if the sale hadn't been successful, it would have been a worthwhile endeavor for how revealing it was. They claimed that Twitter was not censoring. Now they claim that they're not going to be able to censor properly or that he's going to censor using Twitter One journalist literally called Twitter a weapon that's going to be wielded by him. They're calling it all the things that has been accused of being. And the reason that they're doing that is not because he says, I want to weaponize this or I want to ban liberals or I want to control this speech. It's because he said we're going to use the Bill of Rights as a basic fundamental building block over what's allowed to be said. A document, I think, has worked pretty well in the United States for, for a long time. And because he said he's going to crack down on the bots, he's going to expose the algorithms they've used to censor willy-nilly and arbitrarily over the past years, and he's not going to to be answering to the rogue mob anymore. He's going to tolerate criticism. That alone apparently has really exposed the rage of the regime, and I get it. They've used Twitter very effectively over the last couple of years to punish opponents, to hone the messages for the corporate media, to promote their friends. And, and, and to essentially kind of control that media narrative.
1: Well, their reaction to this has been so extreme that literally just what, yesterday Joe Biden announced the formation of what can only be described as a new ministry of truth headed by someone who's been deeply untruthful.
3: <laughs> it's, it's It's completely wild to see even the government reaction to this. And this is why I'm actually surprised that the sale has gotten as far as it so far has. Because Twitter is extremely important to the ruling regime for how they craft their messages, what they suppress, and what they support. And this is really showing it to be so. The, the, the government coming out and saying, we're going to have a ministry of truth led by someone who calls things disinformation, who's been a frequent peddler of actual disinformation, actual lies, the, the Russia dossier, etc., who's got some ridiculous clips of, of her up there singing about how she's going to censor people. Uh, but I also think the government's entering a shady place uh, legally speaking, because they have been able to hide these last couple of years be, uh, away from, and shy away from First Amendment litigation because private corporations have been the ones who've been making these decisions. Government's been staying out of it. It's strictly unconstitutional for the government to restrict speech. President Barack Obama's press secretary had to remind reporters that multiple times in one of the last press conferences they had before he left office. You see the government now stepping in. They're going to try and hide it as part of the intelligence community. Try to hide it as something that they say is foreign disinformation, which is completely, totally bogus, as we saw with the Hunter laptop thing. But, but in the end, they may actually put themselves in a legally difficult position regarding the First Amendment when they try to actually have their own censorship bureau. Yeah, I
1: think I think they are stepping onto very, very dangerous ground. But the fact that they're hiding it uh, within the intelligence services is also should be very, very concerning to Americans out there that we are stepping into territory that has never been seen in this country before. And and I want to explore that a little more when we come back with Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. On the line with us right now, Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, uh, one of the best commentators in the country, frankly, on tech and free speech issues. Uh, Christopher, one of the things that I think you brought up is the that there is sort of a complication for Elon Musk in this theoretical Twitter takeover is that Twitter is hosted on Amazon servers, and Amazon has not been exactly – a leader in the free speech movement lately
3: either they've not at all been a leader in the free speech movement one of the whole reasons i write for is this because amazon web services decided that the social media upstart parlor didn't deserve to exist anymore they justified that by claiming parlor was an organizing place for the january 6th riot when in fact that turned out to not be true at all and no evidence was ever provided later turned out that it was actually facebook that was more of a place where people organized the In in response to that, they took down Parler. They ripped it off their servers. And the thing about Amazon Web Services, too, is they provide their own code system. So when you use them as a host, you build the websites, your website using their tools. So if somebody turns you off, it's not like you can just switch electric companies. You're going to switch servers. You have to completely rebuild your site. It's extremely devastating. They've shown themselves to be an enemy of free speech. And then more recently, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, when they had the most obscene anti-free speech people resigning, the head of community outreach for Amazon Web Services tweeted out to them that they would have a home with their company. Anyone who was resigning Twitter over this would have a place. And then you had Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon Web Services, trying to claim that Elon Musk would have a a threat from China, which in part is true, but it's extremely hypocritical for Jeff Bezos (laughs) to say it all. So when these things come together, and Twitter is entirely hosted by Amazon Web Services, I don't foresee them being canceled just over the purchase. But if he brings back President Trump and some of the prominent scientists who pushed back against the COVID regime, if he brings back, let's say, some of the shock hosts like Alex Jones, these sort of people that are, that are hated, then I could foresee them being canceled or at least held over a barrel by Amazon Web Services.
1: It's, it's just an amazing level of power that has been aggregated in certain tech companies.
3: Chris, um, the East India Company would be in shock over how much power <laughs> companies like Google and Amazon Web Services have. Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Chris, is, is this an opportunity to, for those, those who just want free speech or those who want bipartisan, nonpartisan news coverage or center-right to start buying some newspapers as well? I mean, I think always a mistake the Coke organization made is all the st- all the money they spent. How much more different the world would have been if they bought like the L.A. Times,
3: Dallas Morning Star, and Miami Herald?
0: It'd just be a different world.
3: It would be. I think this has been a this is this is a really big opportunity for entrepreneurs and for those people who want to do this. I mean, if, if you were selling, for example, conservative wrenches, that maybe they put the like 1776 on them, you'd have no market. Uh, maybe outside of a couple Fox News infomercials. But if some, if tomorrow somebody bans you from using wrenches if you're a conservative, then suddenly you'd have a massive market for that. And that's the equivalent of what we've seen with some aspects of finance, banking, email listservs, uh, credit card processors, payroll organizers, social media companies, uh, internet servers. All of these things are breaking down. We're in what, we're in what Tom Klingenstein from uh, Claremont Institute has called a cold civil war where there's no violence yet, thank God. But there's a disagreements that are not being bridged and will not be bridged. And because of that, there's a separation of businesses, a creation of a second Internet, the creation of a second economy. And none of these things, whether it's banking or finance or, 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 or servers, most of these things, they're, they're not copyrighted information. They're not protected. It takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of connections and being very careful and smart. But these things can be done. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to make it. The So there's a lot of opportunities out there for people. And while there have been certainly political grifters out there, it's been frustrating to see. At the same time, there are some really intelligent folks, especially on the libertarian side, who've been waking up and saying, "Here's an opportunity, and I'm going to pursue it."
0: Chris, um, do you get worried about the bubble? Either sides puts themselves in. I'll give you an example. I. I posted today on Facebook that I, I I subscribe to everything. Yes, Sam. I literally have 30 newspaper subscriptions. I, you know, I get the Federalist you, newsletter. You send me I get paywall the- stuff every day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Sam's too cheap to join me in my crusade <laughs> to subscribe to everything. But you know, today I posted. You know, I, I I get the New Yorker and Atlantic too, just because I like to see different perspectives. Um, I think it's important. And so the New Yorker did did the most liberal thing in the world. They sent me a tote bag. Right, and um, (laughs) so I posted the I posted the picture on Facebook. I cannot believe the DMs I got from people in DC saying, "Why would you read that trash?" I mean, they're like scolding me, and I shot back and said, "Don't you want to know what people who don't have your same opinions think?" And it was, and I'm just, and I'm alarmed by it. I mean, and two of them were PhDs, and I'm just literally alarmed that. It's not just their side is definitely in a bubble. I mean I mean if it doesn't come out of Capitol Hill or New York or LA, they don't seem to know what's going on the rest of the world. Probably put Seattle in there too. But I, I just think this bubble culture is not good and it's not good for conservatives.
3: No, it's not good for anyone. The Atlantic actually has a really great article out this month on the subject because why have we gotten so stupid in the last year on both sides? And the reason is some of the Worst aspects of human nature and mob mentality and faction that are fed by this—the rapid adrenaline rush and, estro- and, and releases uh, that you get from social media or from agreeing with people and from moving—now these are these are problems that are intrinsically human. That's just part of our fallen nature that we do this, do these sort of things. But technology has made it a lot easier to find your group and to exclude others. And so it's worthwhile reading these publications. Now, I, there are some publications I've stopped reading because. I could guess what CNN is saying about something. It's basically <laughs> right, at the opposite right. of the truth, that I turn it on, like, all right, I got it. But places like the New Yorker or the Atlantic, while well, they've been declining in some of their standards for a long time now, still have some really interesting thinkers. If, if you don't understand what the other side is thinking, then how the heck are you ever going to combat it?
0: Amen. Amen. And hopefully Sam will pony up and start getting some subscriptions. So well, I, look, I pay for the New York
3: Times. That's all the liberalism <laughs> I can afford. <laughs> the New York Times is worth subscribing to, at least for the cooking section. No, I get that, recipe ideas from them all the time.
1: Oh, that, that is a very valid
0: point. Absolutely. Very true. valid. Chris, what what do you see going forward happens with Twitter? What, what is your guess? If you were a betting man and we took you to Vegas today or you did the Fan Duels app, we have no equity in that, by the way, if you did that, what do you see is going to happen here next six, 12 months?
3: I think it's going to be slower than people expect, but there's a couple moves that he has forecast that I think would be excellent. One of them is very difficult to do. It's getting rid of the bots, and that's difficult to do because the formulas that you need to create, the machines you need to create to go after these fake accounts will scoop up normal people in them as well. It's going to cause a backlash, so it's a difficult problem to solve. But it'll do a lot to get rid of the mob mentality that's helped chase American CEOs around and chase politicians and sports teams around by making people think that everything is just super political and super super running that and that the mob is actually a lot bigger than it is. And the second thing I think he's going to do is the algorithms. If he can expose the algorithms, then that will put a stake in the heart of the censorship regime, let people know how they're actually being controlled, and it will expose the people who have been pushing for these censorships and getting away with it by just blaming the algorithm. Those two things will be huge. But he's going to get a lot of pushback, and it makes a little big difference over who he puts in charge of that company for how they do next.
1: Christopher, if you were the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I, I've thought about this before. I would be tempted to tell my employees that a condition of the employment is not to have a Twitter account.
3: <laughs> I mean, I think that'd be wonderful, though the employees having a Twitter account has exposed so much they've they've admitted how pro-censorship they are they've they've claimed that they were right to, to ban the hunter biden story from one of the oldest papers and the seed papers uh the thing i do love about social media accounts is people don't really hide anymore they, they put their stupid opinions no. out there very quickly
0: <laughs> no not not at all matter of fact what's interesting is watching the last 72 hours the various conservative um Conservatives on Twitter, how their followings increased 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70,000 people all of a sudden. And I am sure there's a bunch of people on Twitter just trying to hide and not want to have an audit done when Musk actually takes it over. And it's amazing because they just didn't pick up 70,000 people overnight. I mean, something's happening, right? They're being unblocked, or whatever the case may be. It's been quite incredible to watch.
3: The And they're under legal control right now, legal obligation to not change, to not touch the knobs. not
0: Yeah, control. I don't believe that, and that at was all.
3: In, I think that they're going to try to their tracks, but that was put in initially to try and stop them from creating sabotage of the of the incoming buyer. So one possibility of this, because all these things will leave a trace, one possibility is that they've just taken their fingers off the knobs. They're no longer allowed to control what's trending. They're no longer able to just shadow ban. They're no longer able to suppress things and, put, and promote other things. And because of that, you've seen a great reorganizing of who's getting more followers, who's getting more likes, who's getting more, who's getting more retweets, etc. Uh, but so far, it's a mystery exactly what that is. But given the suddenness of it and combined with that legal order, I wonder if that's it.
0: Well, I mean, perfect example. Donald Trump Jr. posted today that he said, quote, tell his father's son. While I'm awesome and totally deserving of the 87,000 new followers a day, it seems that someone took the shackles off my account. Yeah. I mean, that just didn't happen. 87,000 people didn't wake up the last two days and say, you know what? I'm going to follow Don Jr.
3: I think that's totally true. Uh, And there have been shackles put on these accounts. uh, And now that they're being released, I mean, I I notice when I put out something that I think is funny and witty, maybe it's not, but I get retweeted by. Molly Hemingway and Sean Davis and other people, Jack Pasoviak, Benny Johnson, and it only gets like 15 retweets, and it's all people I know. (laughs) Well, I know that someone gave me that system, because all those people have millions of followers.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Absolutely. Beyond just the Twitter fight, I I think one of the things that's being missed is everything, and you kind of gave a list of it, Elon Musk really is the visionary of this time right i mean this guy's doing things that in conceiving and and executing things that nobody else in the world is coming close to
3: i I was always i used to be very skeptical of elon musk because of how well he gains the subsidy system when the taxes system where he's getting people who are paid by the taxpayer to buy his cars while his company's subsidized solar city really creeps me out but then one day when i watched in the background, during a meeting, I was supposed to be paying attention to the speaker, and I suddenly saw a rocket ship landing on the planet like it was Star Wars or Star Trek. <laughs> I thought, what the heck is that? And I realized that was SpaceX. After that, I completely reevaluated the man of, sure, he's gaming the system, sure, he's outsmarting it, but he's doing things that are absolutely visionary, things that are wild. Uh, this is another example. He's going with the battle as he's chasing after it. He's and it's still yet to be seen because he's someone who has no masters. He's someone who's difficult to control. He's difficult to, to figure out. He also, by the way, like one of his major passion projects is creating microchips to put in humans' brains. Uh, with Neuralink, so you have that. I'm very skeptical of that, but everything else he does is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, they're not opening my head to stick one of those in anytime well, soon. No, I look, I, I look, look,
0: look, I, look. I think Elon Musk goes by the old wise, you know, the old saying: "There are no bad ideas in brainstorming." He just puts money behind <laughs> all his brainstorming and figures it out from there.
3: I think that's true, and, and I I kind of wonder how much of this massive forty four billion dollar Purchase he just made came out of stone conversations with him and Jack Dorsey, who's one of his close friends. I'm looking at this thing going. <laughs> you guys have been talking about this for a while. Have you Have you thought about it more than that? <laughs> I think he has. But it's yeah, Dorsey's
0: Dorsey's been quite complimentary of the purchase. Uh, that's been an interesting twist to this. I think for a lot of people.
3: I think he was one of the people who was. I think he was one of the people who was crucial to the purchase going from no, we're not doing it, to suddenly yes, we're doing it. I think he was able to make a deal with Elon Musk. Now, my fear is that in response to that, Elon said, I'll put you in charge because he certainly doesn't have the time to oversee all these different companies. And while Jack Dorsey's someone who's definitely got some more interesting uh, and good ideas on free speech than a lot of the people who have taken over since then, he has not so far shown to have the management skill to have to fire all the people he's going to have to fire in order to actually write that ship.
1: Christopher, we, we have just a little bit under a minute left. Tell people how they follow you and how they stay up with your work.
3: Well, they can check us out. At, I write at com, and you can follow me on Twitter at cbedforddc, or on Truth, uh, president Trump's media platform, at Bedford. And then we also work at rightforge.com, where we're right now working on building automated services. It'll be out in the next few months. So people can move their websites over to a place that will never cancel them and goes by the Bill of Rights.
1: Fantastic. Christopher Bedford, thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, if you stay tuned, we do have one more podcast-only segment uh, coming up. Otherwise, we will see you next week. All right. Welcome back to the podcast only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. If you're listening to this, please subscribe, download, make sure you get every one of our episodes. Cause I think we're doing some really fun stuff these days. Those,
2: how many Chuck,
0: episodes have we done? How many, how many episodes have we done? I was thinking about that this morning. I
1: was can, listening to a Ki- podcast. Kylie, do we with- have a number?
2: I don't know the number off the top of my head, but we could do the math because, uh, it's, Every single week since the first week of January 2021. Okay, that
1: wasn't a very good answer, Kylie. <laughs> and, and not only that, but
0: there's no sunshine here either. I don't know. We well, may have to fire. I'm super you. Well, I think. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna hit a hundred this summer. But that's your nerd there. Yeah. Um, I loved our guests. I loved our guests today. Um, COVID and Twitter have really unmasked a lot in our nation. I, Sam, I have told you this before. And I think you agree. If I had one wish that I think would make this country significantly better, it would be that we just got rid of teachers' unions. I I think they are an impediment to everything. I mean, that would be my one wish. It's it's more so than labor unions, public employee unions. They are just really – they're a propaganda machine that aren't really concerned about educating kids. It's a talking point for them, but there's no proof they really care about it. And I know these – the, and we watch these governors put money into the schools or spend more, the legislatures, and then you find out that the 20 percent increase is only really 15 percent or 16. It's a joke. It's well, a joke. not only
1: that, but the educational outcomes for children continue to get worse despite pouring more money into the system. And it's exceptionally clear at this point that teachers unions are not interested in kids or parents except as uh, captives in their system to generate more revenue for themselves.
0: I agree. And, and then regarding Twitter, um, we have talked about this many times. Twitter was the greatest unmasking of the ideology of 90% of the reporters in this country than we could have ever done with investigative research or whatever. Um, it's been amazing. This meltdown, frankly, has been embarrassing to watch with them.
1: I, look, most I, I don't believe most journalists have a right to call themselves any such thing at this point. I mean, the, these are really totalitarian activists with a worldview that is diametrically opposed to—I I, believe—diametrically opposed even to your average everyday Democrat.
0: Well, they are the group. They are the group most likely to be living in the bubble we discussed earlier with Chris. Right. Um, I, I, you know, and I I was struck this morning with the comments from friends who are well educated people to our PhDs. And it's just like, are you kidding? That's not how I go about my life. I want to know both sides. I want to see things. Um, And I do think that is something conservatives have to we have to be the more enlightened group. We have to be the more educated and we have to understand not only what our beliefs are and reinforce them with study an actual experience, but we need to understand what our fellow Americans who don't agree with this are thinking. Yes. And if you don't do that, we're we're never gonna reach we're never going to reach a modicum of respect for one another.
1: Well one of the things that that Musk has talked about doing with Twitter that I would, you know, endorse in a heartbeat is requiring people to unmask themselves, no more hiding behind, you know, Twitter Free. handles. But you have to put your name on it.
0: Yeah, I I hate these bland, anonymous accounts because they are usually the nastiest human beings in the world.
1: Yeah, and I really think that those things would tone down significantly if people had to put their name on there. I know, look, you and I are both on there. We have our name on there. You put stuff out, it's ours. We
0: own it. Yeah, and people don't. Well, great show today. Jamie and Kylie, as always, great job. It's been fantastic. Yeah, although uh, Kylie, count them up.
2: 72.
0: 70. Okay, there we go.
2: We need to do 100th anniversary.
0: Ooh, we got to start planning 100. We got to start planning 100 we, so we only have 30. We'll go from there. Oh, God, I'm bad at math. Well, <laughs> yeah, I Kylie. Cool. K- k- <laughs> k- k- <laughs> never do that. Never on <laughs> air. <laughs> anyway, folks, we hope you have a great weekend while Kylie figures out math. Hopefully, she'll have it figured out next week. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Have a great weekend.
2: The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.